0: competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati hey
1: everybody welcome to the art of war podcast my name is paul murphy your host i'm joined by nick nanavati
2: hey paul always good to be back how you doing
1: it's amazing. And Jack Harpster. Hey, hey. Good to be on. Jack, you were fresh off of victory in Chicago, which is not an easy road. There was a ton of just top-quality competitors. You got to play some of them on the on the, your path to victory. This is not your first time on the show. I should probably introduce you as an amazing player. I actually won the Nova Open recently. I mean, they like just on a tear. How
0: you been doing, man? I've been doing good. I've been doing good. There's uh, been a lot of a lot of majors and super majors in the last month and a half, two months, and uh, I'm just I've just been having a good time. You know, just it's it's tournament season, baby.
2: It's it's felt like it's your year. You're number 1 in the ITC season right now and not only that, you're not playing any specific army. You're hopping army to
0: army to army to army, breaking every conventional piece of wisdom I I preach. What is going on with that? Uh, I've always just kind of liked solving new problems. So like once I once I get an army down, And I know what it does, and I know I've run into the same problems in list design or on the table enough times. I kind of just don't want to keep doing that anymore, and I just shift to a different problem. I I just like tackling new ideas and new problems, Um, although I've really been enjoying Harlequins recently, so I think I'm going to stick with them for a little bit. Also, uh, apparently, uh, list hopping is magic for me, and I can't physically lose an event if I have zero practice games beforehand. I didn't <laughs> <laughs> look. Some folks just make it look
1: easy, and but uh, we'll, we'll actually we'll talk about that over the course of this episode and the next episode. I do want to remind everyone this is part one of a two part conversation. Part two is subscribers only. Part one we'll be going down the list. We'll be talking about some secondaries that you pick, maybe some go tos, or how you might mix it up based on a couple of matchups. Uh, and then command points, and just basically maybe your path to victory through the tournament. But you play a lot of Warhammer Forty Thousand. So I know we're talking about list hopping and and you know playing kind of what you feel on the day, or maybe what your best guess for what might do well in the meta. But you got a lot of reps on the tabletop.
0: Yeah, and a lot of that transfers army to army. Um, basic, if you play good forty k, you play forty k centered around you know scoring your points, denying your opponent's points. That carries you 90% of the way there. The 10%, 20% maybe, is going to be off of how your army performs. And I don't ever go into a tournament without deep diving what an army can do. Harlequins, I did take a while to design the list, probably about a week, week and a half of just thinking about it. And Necrons, I also you know deep dived the army before I played them, same when I played Tau to Cherokee. So I go in with a good game plan, and I go in with a list that I've, you know, that I've thought about from the ground up so i know exactly how i how i've designed it to play and then i just play good 40k with that and you know also i learn on the job a little bit rounds one and two might be a little bit of learning the army but uh that that's okay
1: your list is what i would consider a bit of a hybrid let's actually just jump into it it's not it's not necessarily just harlequin's dot list here you have what is i think of not i say not an uncommon template but it has a lot to do with the SATA the faction choice that you've made. If you can walk us through this.
0: Yeah, so I decided I was going to play Harlequins because I thought that they were fun and they're good. So you know it's it's both of those. it's they're good and they're fun. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna play Harlequins to Chicago. I went out on the porch with the Eldar book and I read, just read through all the Harlequin rules uh, just again to see if there's anything there that you know is not the standard eight or nine boat light list. And I looked through and I was like, wait a minute. Twilight is actually really good. And I did come inside and tell John and Nick, hey, I think Twilight's really good. And were they I like,
1: get out of here?
0: No, no. They were like, yeah, it's it's fine. It's not bad. You know, it's Harlequins, it's good. You know, they they gave me they gave me some some leash to talk about it. And uh, and then I decided I'm gonna try and build this Twilight list. And I built the list with uh an Art of War teammate newly joined Quentin Rampage Johnson. And we designed the list together. Now, he played a couple practice games with it, but I did not. And part of that was to keep the magic alive, you understand. But we eventually came to the decision that Twilight looks a bit like light, but with these large squads. And you can do some interesting things with large squads as well, which I'm sure we will talk about later, that you can't do with five mans.
1: Let's so, let's go down the list. Let's, uh, let's keep people in suspense long enough. Let's see what is in the list, and then we'll
0: break down some of the choices. Absolutely. So uh, my I have a troop master as my warlord. With Foot in the Future, a Fusion Pistol, Twilight Fang, and Veiled King, which is he uh, always wins on a 2+, plus except against monsters and vehicles. I have a Shadow Seer with Twilight Pathways, Mirror of Minds, and Agent of Pandemonium, which is a 6-inch aura of minus 1 attack for enemies. I have a unit of 12 troops with 9 Harlequin Blades and one each of Caress, Embrace, and kiss. Then I have two 12-mans with only two Harlequin blades, and then a mixture of 10 kisses, embraces, and caresses to give myself access to those stratagems. I have Then I have five units of troops, five units of five. Four of them have two Harlequin blades, one each of a caress, an embrace, and a kiss in order to give myself access to that, those stratagems. Two fusion pistols, two neurodisruptors. And the last one just has a Harlequin kiss, keeping it cheap. I then have another Shadow Seer. This is a patrol, so this is a battalion patrol list. I have another Shadow Seer with Fog of Dreams, Webway Dance, and I gave him Mirror Architect, as well as Player of Twilight, which is if you roll four dice for luck dice, you gain a CP. Whether you keep the luck dice or not, you just gain a CP if you roll for four. And then finally, Laughing God's Eye on him, which is the six-inch aura of five up against Mortal wound. Very nice. I have five Star Weavers and one Solitaire, and that's the list. Nice. So that's all battalion and patrol broken out? That's right, yeah, Italian patrol. Eight troops, uh, two shadow seers, a troop master, five star weavers, and a solitaire.
2: So I want you, because you basically described your process for this army, as you decided Harlequins are cool and fun, you want to take them to Chicago, you sat on the porch for a week with a book, and you came back with this list that then went on, went, went on to win Chicago. So let's unpack kind of like how you came up with this I guess, different combination of units. This isn't your typical Harlequin list. There's only so many data sheets in the codex. So there's only so many variations to what a Harlequin army can look like, but I would definitely call this atypical. Would you, Paul?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I think this is, you know, you normally see people skewing towards one or the other. And you mentioned in the, you know, kind of the preamble of the show is that you felt like the Twilight Sadith played bigger into larger squads and you've got some here.
0: Yeah, so one thing about Harlequins is that their stratagems don't scale in cost to the size of the unit that's affected. So a 12-man unit is going to cost one CP to, uh, to auto-wound on sixes to hit as a uh, five-man unit. It's the same same CP cost. So 12-man units, very effective. Uh, And then Twilight gives you some bonuses in combat. Uh, Twilight Sadith gives you, um, I'm actually using every single part of Twilight in this list. Uh, I think it's very strong. It gives you plus one attack on a turn in which you charged or heroic or were charged. It gives you plus two inches to your piles in, pile ins, and consolidates, which is very powerful. They move very quickly. You can do some combat shenanigans with that. Then uh, their warlord trait, which is player of twilight, is if you roll four luck dice, you gain a CP. That's very strong. I love their C- damage CP strats, and you need to stack a couple on in order to do a ton of damage. And so you need extra CP. That's how you get it. Uh, then there's the Twilight Fang, which is strength plus two, AP three, damage two, and you get an extra attack for every uh, for the battle round number. So on battle round
1: three of uh, three, extra I think attacks. Nick may have actually mentioned that, or correct me if I'm wrong. But like what did you said one of the best relics in the game, it, it's very strong,
0: and it's very strong coupled with Veiled King and Foot in the Future. So Foot in the Future is. You advance D3 plus three, which is great because you can advance and charge with everybody. So this guy advances D3 plus three, and he charges at plus six inches. Not like set one of the dice to sixes, not anything like that. It's plus six inch. So if I'm I am i can't declare charges outside of 12 inches, but if I declare a charge right at the edge of 12 inches, I make it on a five. So very strong there. It makes him incredibly fast, and he just loves to get out of a boat, advance, hop my opponent's lines, and go clean into their backfield. And then we got to yeah.
1: see some of this on camera also absolutely
0: yeah uh and veiled king means he always wounds on a two plus which is great because he's only strength five otherwise and he doesn't do that into monsters and vehicles which is a bit unfortunate but he goes in and he just kills things and then he gets plus one attack for the twilight sadith so he goes from six to seven and then the twilight fang gives him plus one for every for every battle round number that it is so if it's battle round 1, he makes 8 attacks. If it's battle round 5, well, then he makes uh, 12? Yeah, 12 attacks. Seems good, is the point. So it's a mixture of these,
2: these Harlequin units and Star Weaver's kind of traditional style Harlequin builds where they move around the table scoring points. And then these big hard-hitting troop units that just you stack strats. You They have a bunch of weapons. They hit really hard. You got your standard troop master that flies a billion inches and hits super hard. Although I guess in Twilight it's a bit harder, how does it come together on the table, though? Like, why is this different from other Harlequin armies?
0: Well, one of the one of the key parts of Twilight is one I haven't even mentioned yet. It's their stratagem. Their stratagem is one CP. You pick a, a unit, and six is to hit auto wound. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the key to unlocking the melee damage that the list can put out, because everything is strength three or four. Occasionally, characters get up to strength five. Very proud of the solitaire for being strength six, but... There, that that just means you can't wound well. There's no re-rolls to wound. Not, I mean, you re-roll ones to wound when you're the Troop Master Woo! I mean, it's not bad when you have it because you have a ton of attacks. But the sixes to hit auto-wound for one CP just means any troop unit can hurt anything in the game. And once you unlock that, oh boy, the strats start flying. Like, plus one damage now suddenly is really effective when you combo it with uh, sixes to hit auto-wound. That's uh, very... Powerful When you combine it with sixes to wound or immortal, because now you're getting over damage thresholds that let you kill bigger and bigger things. So that stratagem is a key part of making these large troop units and even the small troop units hit really, really hard. So it's kind of like you're
2: addressing directly the issue that Harlequins have traditionally faced, which is they're a whole bag of tricks. They fly around the table. They're pretty deadly, just small skirmishing stuff. But when it comes to like the real tough targets in the game, the monsters, the Terminator units, they just don't get it done. AP2 is not what it used to be. Damage reduction is everywhere. And you're kind of addressing that through large units with specifically the Twilight plus one attack and the six to hit auto wound coupled with everything else and use that Warlord trait to get even more command points.
0: It's a it's a self-sustaining ecosystem. You gain <laughs> CP, right? Yeah, yeah, you gain CP from the warlord trait. You build up CP by using the small units to uh, go take primary, to go get your secondaries, and then you dump all of that CP into one glorious turn from the twelve troops. They murder everything, and then you build back up again until the second unit goes in, and then you murder everything. And occasionally you have to splash some CP around, but generally it's build up a stockpile of CP and then Kamehameha into your opponent with a 12-man, and that hits incredibly hard.
2: I like that. It's a, it's a pretty interesting approach to Harlequins, because I always figured Dark would be the solution to the lack of damage problem that Light Armies have been facing, because they get that extra AP bonus to try to get around Armor Contempt. But you addressed it more with just uh, the Wound part, the weak, Wound yep. Weak, the Wound Weakness
0: volume really helps because ap2 going to ap1 is still failable for a lot of uh, the um armor of contempt armies right the uh thousand suns really don't like taking three ups or death to damage three on their terminators they really don't like that uh, especially when you know you wound them on fours and you auto wound on sixes to hit and you do mortal wounds when you charge them and you do mortal wounds with sixes and Sure, it's expensive to pay five CP for all of that and probably get the job done with just four. But your opponent isn't going to want to stick a 10 man unit into that meat grinder, even if it does cost you four CP. And then, like a turn and a half later, you have four CP again, you do it again.
1: Nice. Yeah, do you think most players are doing that? That like a CP math is like they just don't want to get close no matter if you have any capability of doing that.
0: Yeah. Generally, I could build up CP fast enough that coming near me was just never a good idea. Unless I just hit them with like the 12 man. And then I was down to like one on their turn. And at that point, they still have plenty of stuff to deal with. And then by the time I'd hit them again, I'm back up to three, you know, and suddenly it's not really nice to get near a 12 man.
2: So you said, you keep phrasing it like it's your opponent never wants to come near you. How, that brings me to the next question, which is how does this army move around the table? Do you run at your opponent trying to get in close combat with these destructive harlequin troops? Uh, or are you trying to draw your opponent to you?
0: Like, how do you play this army? So, generally, the way I played this was I would just conserve resources and then spend those resources to get my points. So, if my opponent doesn't do anything about my game plan, I'm going to uh, send out a five man to a lot of the time. We'll talk about secondaries, but a lot of the time I would take deadly performance and take your places, but send out a five man to go hold like two take your places objectives and the center objective. And then I'd send like a boat into their deployment zone. And all of a sudden, that's, you know, Deadly performance for three, I'll hold take your places in my deployment zone, and that's a four on take your places, and I'd weave veil, and i pass the turn back to my opponent. And because I have five units of troops in five boats, I can keep that up literally the entire game. And then if my opponent wants to do anything about it, that's when a 12-man hits them instead of a five-man, and that thing then kills them, takes the center objective, you know, gets two kills for deadly performance, holds multiple take your places objectives, and I pass the turn back to them.
2: So you basically create this scenario, and we'll get to your secondaries in a bit, like you said, but the where your secondary game can be completed by just sacrificing a one unit per turn, and while you keep up a pretty defensive position with the rest of your army at a line of sight and things like that, and you're able to kind of just score primaries passively, evenly with your opponent, and beat them on a secondary game, and if they try to stop you, that they have to come near you, and into the lines, then they go?
0: Yeah, basically. And also... If any enemy unit comes up and touches the center objective, I always have the option to just hit them with three units at once and wrap them up and prevent them from leaving. And then if they do decide they want to leave, I can consolidate with um Chikarach Jest, I believe it's called, and I consolidate into them. And now, ordinarily it's a six-inch move, but because I'm Twilight, it's eight inches, and that's how they ruled it at this event. And so it's very hard to get away from Twilight once they've tagged you. Can you walk us through that interaction a bit? Uh, that's a pretty obscure one. Absolutely. So the Harlequins have a have a stratagem called, I believe it's called Chegger X jest, which when an enemy unit falls back from you, uh, you can falls back from I believe just infantry. You can either shoot them, that's one CP, or you can consolidate, which is two. When you consolidate, you move six inches. So if you if they leave and you consolidate into them, they they can't shoot you because you are still in combat with them. So anything that moves six or less or is like move eight and you're all around them so you can get into combat with them again, they can't really leave because they'll fall back, pay two CP usually to Desperate Breakout, and then I just follow them for my two CP and I'm back in combat with them. I don't really like that. Now Twilight pile in and consolidate an additional two inches, and the way they rolled it in GW Chicago is that that means when I make that consolidate move, I go eight inches and now, all of a sudden, it is nearly impossible to get away from Twilight once they've tagged you. Have a powerful tool in your pocket, and I predict that if I played it to future events, it, there would be games where it's just, hey, listen, 2CP, I'm going to ruin all of your plans. I know that when I played at WTC against Mike Porter, who was playing Harlequins and Eldar, that stratagem to uh, to consolidate when I fell back from him with Tau was incredibly annoying to play around. Uh, and it was very difficult to play around. Yeah, And if it's 8 inches, it's a whole nother level. And I think a big part of your game plan against Tau should be tagging them in combat with a 12-man. And then when they go to fall back, because right, Tau Crisis Suits fall back 10 inches, so if you're all the way around their base, they go 10, you are now less than 9 inches away from them because you were all the way around their base. You consolidate 8, you're still in engagement range of them. And... Only the model in engagement range of you gets to shoot, which again is a very weird interaction with Tau specifically, but it's very good for Harlequins.
2: I'm, I'm glad you had a good plan for Tau there. We'll keep the matchup to talk to you. That's a really cool micro interaction that your army takes good use of. I think part of playing an army like Harlequins, it, it unlocks its power kind of the, the more understanding you have of competitive 40K, of like the nuances to pylons and consolidates and all of those little tricks you can do we teach a lot of that in the war which is where the paid subscriptions go we have a whole community for all that but jack if you were trying to summarize i guess like how much of this army as you described it is just good 40k is required i guess my question is how much of it requires you to have like full understanding of that assault phase like that
0: i would say this army is based very heavily around fight phase minutia, uh and i think if you were to play this if if people out there were to play this list and really master it. I think they would get a they would get much better understanding of how to manipulate the fight phase for any army that relies on it.
2: Okay, so any tips you have for like someone who's trying to learn Harlequins? Because obviously, part of it is learning the army, but this is a lot of actually just studying 40k and how to get better at it.
1: Well, well and they're also like these are pieces that don't have a lot of like built in like on their stats durability. You know, they're tough as three, one wound you know what is it toughness 5 6 wound vehicles i mean you look at it and go this thing is made of paper and glass what is happening
0: yeah the harlequins are actually super durable when you start to stack rules together i'm sure we'll we'll cover all the little combos in the list in part uh 2 well, we can, or maybe we can they-
2: cover that now i mean like how you just said your harlequins are super durable they're toughness 3 they're 4 pinballs, which is great and um but Sometimes you're very vulnerable to mortal wounds. There's just like a lot of attacks in 40K. Take a lot of saves, you'll fail fours. How do you
0: keep this army alive? Okay, so there's a lot of dice manipulation here. So, Star Weavers, for one, toughness five, six wounds, as Paul said, uh, they are minus one to hit, and you can't reroll the hit against them. That skews the math quite a lot. If you have any luck dice in the tank, suddenly that four up save, that four up invuln is rerollable. And anti tank weapons, traditional anti tank weapons anyway, you know, minus Minus one to hit, no re-rolls to hit, four up in vol, potentially a re-roll, potentially CP re-roll. They're never reliable to kill. It uh, doesn't matter whether they're in the open or, or whatever. It, it's very difficult to reliably put down star weavers. But the troops is where it gets shockingly difficult to kill. A 12-man troop unit uh, is very vulnerable to shooting sometimes, and it depends on what you're putting into them. So if you're near a Shadow Seer, you have Shield from Harm, which is a 6-inch aura of minus 1 to be wounded in characters. Well, 12-man troop unit, toughness 3, which means anything strength 4 and 5 is going to be wounding you on 4s. And that's a lot of combat, and that's burst cannons. And a lot of that strength 4, strength 5, whatever, suddenly you're being wounded on 4s? Well, that's not nearly so bad. Uh, In addition, anything high strength probably doesn't have a lot of quantity. And there, the minus 1 to wound going making you be wounded on a three instead of a two, and you have a four-up and suddenly the las cannons are just bouncing off your troops. But that's not all. You are minus one to be hit in combat from the Harlequin's Panoply, and you're also minus one to be hit at ranged if you use lightning-fast reactions. And now you're skewing the math quite a lot. Minus one to hit, minus one to wound, four-up invuln, three-up invuln. If you want to use the uh, the stratagem, two-CP stratagem, after a, an infantry unit advances eight or more inches, you are allowed to... You know, spend two cp three up invulnerable now the unit's very durable the unit will have a five up feel no pain against mortal wounds from the laughing god's eye and a six up feel no pain against mortal wounds uh, if you cast uh, webway dance in addition there's a lead player in there who has two wounds so if you hit them with damage one which theoretically is the best into them the first one is free because it'll just go on the the troop master or not the troop master the uh, lead player who I just gave a harpoon Blade to because he's the same as anyone else. So the lead player just soaks the first damage one wound for free, which is nice. And then finally, I have, in, in terms of tricky ways to be durable, against combat, I have Agent of Pandemonium on a Shadow Seer, which is minus one attack for immune units within six inches, which is surprisingly annoying. Uh, a possessed unit, a unit of, let, let's say, ten possessed, right? Ordinarily, you'd think that will rip its way clean through a troop unit and out the other side. But if you stack all the defensive buffs, it really doesn't. You see, they are are minus one attack, so they go from five to four. Then they're minus one to hit, so they go from hitting on threes to hitting on fours. And then they're minus one to wound, so they go from wounding on threes to wounding on fours, and you have a four-up save. The math goes from a unit a unit of 10 possessed, goes from 50 attacks to 40, 20 of which hit, 10 of which wound, five of which go through. If I have luck dice, it's like two of them go through. If I don't, it's five. And you've killed, with a 10-man possessed unit, you've killed five of my 12 guys.
2: Yeah, the army's deceptively durable, as you can clearly see when you stack all the buffs together. And it's not even one unit, really. You're, you're, most of these things are auras. Minus one to hit is always in combat. Minus one to wound is always, just always. Do you expose this army much to firepower? Or you, what's your threshold for, like, I have to be hiding behind walls? Because one problem I've encountered when I've played Harlequins is if I don't have a good ability to, like, move and advance from behind whatever terrain I deployed behind, To the next piece, this is the foot troops problem. Then I'm kind of tethered to my deployment zone. But with this level of durability, just Shadow Seer and enough guys, do you find you can kind of walk into no man's land and just take that turn? You
0: can. Uh, You can. It's risky, obviously, because you're putting the faith in the dice, which I'd never like to do. Um, But there is a way you can expose yourself yourself to firepower with this list without actually dying. And the way you do that, and this is a, uh, John came up with this, John Lennon. He actually came up with this. You take Mirror Architect and Fog of Dreams. So Mirror Architect got nerfed uh, not even recently, When basically when the book came out. Uh, It used to be a six-inch aura of everything within six inches counted as six inches further away for the purpose of shooting. It was broken. It was nerfed. It is now you pick a core unit within nine inches. Yeah, I believe it's nine. And they count as six inches further away for all shooting. And that's great, uh, especially on things like flamers. Like flamers, is a z inch deep strike down six inches away from you and then can't shoot you because you're counted as being like 12.1 inches away. That's very strong in a 12 man, especially in the demons matchup where I'm worried about flamers. So that's strong in and of itself. Any close range weapons, it means Tau have to get really close to you to shoot you because instead of being 18 inches away, now they have to be 12. It's very annoying for several armies. But. When you combine it with Fog of Dreams, it becomes ruinous. And what Fog of Dreams is, you pick a unit, and your opponent can only shoot it unless it is the closest unit, or if they're within 12 inches. So what you do is you put this unit out on multiple objectives, this 12-man. And I usually use the one that only has three weapons, so it's cheap if my opponent wants to commit to it. So I put it out, strung out on multiple objectives, give them Mirror Architect, and I give them Fog of Dreams. And then I put just behind the unit, like, a couple Star Weavers. You know with guys in them depending on whatever angles i need to take for, for shooting so when my opponent goes to shoot it well clearly the troop unit is closer because they're in front of the star weavers except their count is six inches further away so the star weavers are actually the closest target and they can't target the troops so if crisis suits want to shoot at you they have to be the first activation because they can't strike and fade unless that happened like that has to happen at the start of the shooting phase so they have to shoot at a Starweaver instead because yeah, that's actually closer to you because the unit is six inches further away. Yeah, you can and, really
2: see how this how this adds up.
0: Yeah, it's really annoying because you have to eat through multiple activations. They activate, they kill the boat, then five troops get out of the boat. Well, now that five troop unit is now closer than the 12 troop unit and a second activation is required to kill them. Wow. If your opponent doesn't kill them through minus you know minus one to hit, minus one to wound, and there's like one guy still left, well, they, they still have to shoot at it with a third activation. And if there's two boats, this is going to take a while. Yeah, and so 12-man unit just gets to live touching multiple objectives. And right out in the open, you can't really shoot at it. And that whole thing where if you're within 12 inches, you can shoot at it normally. Well, they're six inches further away. so You have to be within six. Yeah. That's very close. And that's also risking the Harlequin six-inch consolidate. And if I get to six-inch consolidate and hit you... And kill you, or not even five inch pile and in, five inch consolidate, fall back and charge. Suddenly, this twelve man unit—you know—if you don't kill it, you kill like three. It's a nine man unit. Suddenly, it's charging your home field objective, and that's where the game ends.
2: Yeah, that's quite the combo. You basically,
0: <laughs> yeah, <sighs> yeah. So, I really like twelve man units of troops. I think they're very strong, and I think Twilight brings out their maximum potential. And there's a lot of we- really weird little tricks that you can do in the army like that.
1: We'll talk later about how you were trading them and when to deploy them. And when I say deploy them, when to engage them on the battlefield and, and all that goes into that. Um, and I know we've weaved in some command point usage and, and structure here within the course of the dialogue. But can you, le- have we mentioned how many you start with? Like, put- Yeah, I start with
2: a clean zero. <laughs> Clean zero. Nice and tidy. Fresh. So you talk about how you have all these crazy command point stratagem combos, and you're starting out with zero. I mean, walk us through how the magic works, Jack. Talk, talk to me about your stratagems. I'm sorry, Paul, am I stepping on your toes with this section?
1: No, no, go for it. I want to, like, because we, again, we talked about saving up. Sometimes you're zero, sometimes you're at three. Like, what's, how? how are you getting there?
0: Yeah, I I wasn't happy to start at zero with an army that wants stratagems, but I really wanted everything that I took. So I can't, I just decided to start at zero. You know, I go first, I throw out a five man unit. I'm up to two because I rolled four dice for luck. And, you know, I throw out a five man unit and I pass the turn back to my opponent. I go up to three. They do something. By the time I need to use a unit, I'm up to five, and that's enough. So, yeah. Just that simple.
2: In Recover the Relics, I want to ha- highlight this one just because we were touching on it in a strategy session I was doing the other day in the War Room. You don't have Infiltrators, and you go second in Recover the Relics, this mission specifically. You don't get 2 CP until turn 2, at best. Do you find—was that a concern of yours? I know you're relatively new to the Army, so maybe you didn't think of it, but was this is that something you'd consider?
0: No, I, I thought of it. Um, so, first off, Recover the Relics is round 1, so— I was largely banking on getting a random opponent rather than someone who's already won some games uh on recover the relics. Second that it is a problem there. If my opponent goes first and rushes me down on recover the relics, life can get a little difficult because I won't have CP. You know, by the time I will actually so i gain one CP on turn one because I roll four dice, but no no CP for controlling objectives. Then on my turn, bottom of turn one, I get another zero, so I'm down to one. And then by the time top of turn two rolls around him up to three. That's like the bare minimum. So it's like, it's workable if my opponent goes first, but if they continually take my objectives away, life well, can get pretty rough. Gotcha. But it was the first round. So I figured yeah,
2: the calculated risk there. And I'm glad you, yeah, at least had a plan for it for sure. Um, so you talked about your stratagems and just to kind of walk through all the different ones, Harlequins of actually they can ignore invols. six is to, wo- to mortals Mortal wounds when they charge, extra damage, fight twice, chase you after you consolidate, like you broke down, lightning fast. It's I could go on. How did you fight on death? How did you budget your CP and make decisions? And I guess this a little bit. This will be matchup by matchup for sure. You've already talked about how some strats are more valuable than others. So with respect to the fact that we'll keep matchup discussion uh, mostly for part two, what was your general principles?
0: Yeah, I. It's honestly that point. It's just it's just good 40k it's just analyzing how much the effect you need is worth to you and you know if i if i start getting down to 1 or 0 cp i know that i can't have a go turn so i need to weigh if that's worth it and just reading the game state there there's no one correct answer unfortunately um it's it's do i need to have a go turn in the tank well
2: i and, guess there there's some some Challenging questions you might be posed, though, are like, is this interrupt worth it versus having a go turn later? Or do I auto-pass morale on a troop unit to guaranteed hold an objective and mess up my opponent's plan on the scoreboard, but then I'm not saving my seat resources for damage? Those kinds of questions.
0: Yeah, those kind of questions are ones that you're going to be encountering like every turn, every other turn with this army, and there is unfortunately no one correct answer. It is not even army by army, it's like case by case.
2: So, what was your process, I guess, in evaluating it? Like, when would you value points more or value damage more? I'm just trying to codify it a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunately it's it's very hard. It's it's how much of an impact would this strategy have on the game? Do I need to kill something right now? Like, do I do I need to? How much CP do I need to spend on a unit in order to get it over the hump of killing the unit it's in combat with? Um,
2: I guess from a strategic level. Because you generate CP so quickly with your luck dice combined, your your warlord trade, I should say, combined with your general CP generation, and the natural ebb and flow of the Harlequin plan, which we'll get to as soon as we talk about your secondaries, is one by, it's very flowy. You know, turn by turn, you assess the situation, you make your own plan. So I guess it's about urgency of command points. You know, do you need damage CP in the immediate turn, or can you wait it off and buy it out?
0: Yeah, that, that's basically it. Does it need to be a go turn, or can I buy time with a five man unit or a character doing the job I need?
2: Because from a strategic level, you broke it down as you're just conserving resources, and CP may be resources in one way, but so are units. You know, you're just units are number of units. How many times can you sacrifice a squad to move, block something, steal an objective, and score your secondaries?
1: Yeah, and the points premium is that these troops come with too. You don't really want to be too cavalier with them.
0: Yeah, you definitely don't want to lose them too quickly. Um, if you lose too many units too fast, then you can't really play the game. But if you lose one, to, if you lose two units a turn, I have enough to keep that up the whole game. Score all my points, go home happy. Calculated death, right there. Sounds like a Nari.
1: And we'll we'll talk about secondaries here in just a second. But also I also want to you know, with the list design, is folks, if you're playing Harlequins, you probably have a lot of these figures already. If you're looking to get into Harlequins, you know this is a novel take on them, which which is cool. How much did the terrain setting, like you're going into a, a very well established, you know exactly, well, you know within depending on which round, how the boards are going to look, did the terrain play a factor in, in you deciding to take this particular list, or do you think you could make this work, varying formats that exists out there?
0: I think it's definitely at its best on GW terrain because you just have places to stack big units behind your opponent can't really get to. But I do think it, it this list or this archetype can work on basically any terrain format that isn't planet bowling ball
2: by planning bowling ball you mean like no terrain on it just guns guns guns
0: yeah the theoretically zero terrain which we don't really see at this point in 40k's life anymore we used to but not anymore
2: one thing um you kind of answered the question for me but i was going to ask how do you how do you hold primary objectives in the open because i feel like your army is so vulnerable just
0: Shooting if you have to stand in the open,
2: but you answered already with Fog of Dreams plus Mirror Architect. That's a really cool combo.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that, as I said, was John's idea. And that is my go to plan to hold objectives in the open. I've done it on five man squads and just, you know, have a boat behind it that can also get troops out. What is Fog
2: of Dreams cast on? Cast on a six. Okay, so six with a CP reroll, unless you're me,
0: you're probably going to pass it. Yep. And uh, Mirror Architect goes off automatically. So, you know, if, if they're a short range shooting army like Tau, they might have to make the decision of like, do I need to get uncomfortably close in order to kill you off this objective, right? Tau shoot best at 18 inches. Well, now it's 12.
2: Did you ever? Well, I guess we'll save that for part two. Let's get into the secondaries though, because I think we've been beating around that bush. You you mentioned all three of the Harlequin secondaries when you're planning your army, and I know Harlequins have some of the strongest secondaries in the game. Why don't you walk us through how they work, and then if you ever deviated away from them, and what those kind of look like?
0: Absolutely. So Harlequins have a series of great secondaries. The ones I would generally take would be Weave Veil, uh, Take Your Places, and A Deadly Performance. So Weave Veil, It uh, you cast a power, it's a psychic action, it goes off on an enemy unit within 18 inches, and it has to be a unit you have not weaved Veil on. You just get three points. Very powerful, especially if they send one thing to the middle, you cast Weave Veil on it, you kill it, they send something else to the middle, rinse and repeat. It does get one harder every time you cast it, which is you know unfortunate. By the end of the game, it's casting on a seven. But it's very powerful to like work around your opponent's denies that are sitting in the back, and their units are in the front, and they can't deny you. Um, warp ritual is also pretty good. Interrogate's fine, but it puts a little little um, it puts the ball in your opponent's court a little bit. They can dictate where their characters are, make sure you're in deny range, make sure you can't get it, etc. So Weave veil was very powerful. Then take your places is you put an objective marker in your opponent's deployment zone. They put one in your deployment zone more than six inches from any board edge and more than nine from other of the take your places objective markers. And then they put one wholly within six inches of the center following the same restrictions. If you hold two of those at the end of your turn, you get two points. And if you hold all three, you get four. And it's holding
1: them the same way as any other objective
0: marker. Exactly. They only count for the secondary. So they're not normal objective markers in the traditional sense. But Can they be placed on other objective markers? Like, do they interact with those at all? Uh, I think there's like a one inch. They never end up getting placed exactly on objective markers because of the incentives where you want to place as close as possible. Your opponent wants to place as far as possible from the center. Um, But I believe there is like a three inch, three inch rule for it. I'll, uh, I'll find out. But that's very strong because this army always wants, like this army is going to get two and then four and then two and then four and then two and then four. you know, it, it alternates back and forth, generally, and it helps me conserve resources. And if you place one as far, as close as possible, the one in your opponent's deployment zone, you place it as close as possible to the center, then whichever one they place near the center, you can generally string a unit between that and the one in their deployment zone.
2: I've seen you even do that with five-man units in the early turns.
0: It can be hard, but usually doable, especially since people don't really think about that. Mm-hmm. They just it's kind of it's put pretty it obscure,
2: you know. Like I want to put this generally in a hard place for you to get, not thinking of the coherency ramifications of a five-man unit.
0: Exactly, exactly. A lot of the time, what I like to do is hold one, take your places, hold another, take your places, and hold the center objective with one unit.
2: And each model in your unit can only hold one objective, but each your unit can hold as many as it's within range of.
0: Exactly. That's pretty cool. And then, and then the final one that I would take regularly was. um it was a deadly performance which is very strong it is there are four uh, criteria and if you satisfy two of them you get three points one is you have a unit in your opponent's deployment zone another one is that you take an objective you did not have at the start of the turn another one is you kill two units in shooting and another one is you kill two units in combat it used to be i think 3 and 3 in shooting and combat but now it's 2 and 2 it makes it very much easier. very easier um very much easier anyway The way that interacts is usually you get in your opponent's deployment zone and you hold a new objective without doing anything, like without interacting with your opponent, you just score three. And then if you have the ability to kill two units, you generally forego going in their deployment zone. And so you just alternate between those, between killing two units and holding a new objective and being in your opponent's deployment zone and holding a new objective just to get three every single turn. And if you get two kills in shooting, two kills in combat, I mean, you're, you're doing great, champ.
2: Now, what if you, I guess, can't get into your opponent's deployment zone just willy-nilly? Because I know you're super fast with Starmer Weavers and all that, but your opponent could theoretically move block you or potentially just block that out, especially in some of the, the like hammer and anvil-style deployments where it's hard to go from your zone to their zone. You have to spend some time in midfield. Was that ever a consideration for you or a challenge? It's not...
0: I have some tools in here in order to help with that. Sometimes you do end up skipping it, unfortunately, but generally there's ways to work around it. And the ways you work around it are, uh, I have Twilight Pathways to move a unit again. The unit gets out of a boat and then you move it twice and try and get into your opponent's deployment zone that way. Um, Also, moving boats behind terrain so the following turn I can advance them 22 and just put them in my opponent's deployment zone. That's really nice Um, on most of the terrain setups. Most of the deployments, anyway, uh, I can station a boat behind a, a ruin and get into my opponent's deployment zone. Uh, hammer and anvil, that becomes a little harder, but there's only, I think, two true hammer and anvil missions. One of them is round one, which is not the hardest matchups. And the other one is the scouring. On the scouring, what you can do is you can just move about 16, charge, pile in five, consolidate five to swing completely around an enemy unit and get in your opponent's deployment zone that way.
1: And you said round one is not the hardest of matchups. So that's the, it, it really is completely random who you play there. So you could technically have an incredibly hard matchup.
0: Is there all the dice, rounds? Paul? It's a, it's a you, gambling you can. game. For example, Quentin played Tom Ogden round one. Not ideal.
1: Oh, somebody plays, in round one, someone plays the person that eventually goes all the way. Like, that
0: just happens. Jack is Definitely. that person. <laughs> so... Charging to get in is one, one way you can do it. Another is just to throw a character away because they're such a small base. It's very easy to have them you know, pile five, kill their, kill the unit they're in combat with, and then consolidate five and end up in your opponent's deployment zone. That's a unit, and then you hold a new objective, and you're like, we're good here. That's three points, thank you. That, that's how I got it. Like Against Ben Sherwin in the finals, I got it turn one after a lot of thinking. The solitaire that blitzed turn one and just went in.
2: Yeah, I remember your turn one from the commentary seat. You spent so much time thinking about a turn one. I I thought you were thinking about at which tempo you wanted to play the game. Fast, slow, aggressive, defensive, left, right, whatever. Harlequins have so much agency in that decision. But you apparently were thinking about how do I get behind a deadly performance off of the solitaire, which is really cool to
0: see. That's a cool play. Yeah, because scoring your secondaries costs you resources. And so I was trying to determine exactly what resource I wanted to commit, exactly what thing I wanted to hit from his side, and exactly what points I wanted to score. So finally, I figured that out, and then I executed.
1: Solitaire was a was a bold move, for sure.
0: Solitaire's a bold guy. Yeah, you know, indeed. It yeah, yeah, he did quite
2: a lot for you that game. We'll get into your games a lot in part two um paul were there any other questions you want to ask jack while we have I do. Let's,
1: let's detail the path to victory if we can talk about just the just the armies that you played and then we'll, we may break up with some details but just a list of the factions that you were able to defeat and make your way into the finals and then playing for the the trophy
0: absolutely so i can go over my rounds uh round one i played uh robert sakia i believe is how it's pronounced and he was playing Black Templars. That was just a really fun uh, game. where we were Job Templars, to-
2: you're a Black Templar player.
0: Yeah, it was a, it was a shame. You know, he had two Predators. They kind of went off the whole game and just like shot boats down. And then we got in Glorious hand to hand. He had Invictors that deployed on the line, went first, ran at me with Flamestorm cannons. I was like, oh, that actually hurts. <laughs> Sounds awesome. So we just hit each other in the face until one of us fell over and it was him um Next round, I've actually played Matt Estrada, which is much more difficult than your round two would norm ordinarily be. He was playing light Harlequins, and I believe Twilight has a significant edge in that matchup because uh, I have the supremacy in hand to hand combat, and the twelve mans are really annoying for me to deal with. So I set up a twelve man in the center, did the whole Fog of Dreams, you know, your um, architect play. He couldn't deal with it. I got a twelve. I ran at him. I got another twelve. Gave him a zero.
2: We don't have to I'm go through every game in it. detail, but just like a list of who you played against and kind of what armies they ran. We'll go through a lot of these games properly in part two.
0: Okay, uh, I tied Dylan Mattisx World Leaders. That was a very interesting game. Uh, that was that was that was a tough one. That was, <laughs> that was, that that one was almost
2: different. cost me some some moolah. Yeah, you <laughs> want to talk about that now?
0: No. Next? <laughs> uh, then I played Ryan Myers with his uh, Freeblade Lance, his Imperial Knights. Then I played Derek Glassman. We, we cut to top 16. Round one of top 16, Derek Glassman and his Death Guard. Then I played Mark Parker and his Leviathan. A hey, in- tournament veteran? Tournament veteran. Been on the scene forever and ever. Great Competing guy. with Brad Chester for
2: oldest man in 40K. Uh,
0: round seven, I played Tom Ogden in the semifinals. Got that game and went on the finals to play Ben Sherwin with his Emperor's Children. Tom Ogden is, as always, on Tau Sep Tau.
2: Yeah, Paul and I had the pleasure of commentating both your round five, I think it was, versus Death Guard, and round eight versus Ben. Both games are really interesting, so
0: we'll definitely be unpacking those in part two. Yep, round yeah. seven was on stream as well against Tom Ogden. Ah,
2: yes. World's fastest game.
0: It and was. There
1: we go. So that is basically the end of this episode. Uh, we This is part one of a two-part episode. Hang out, if you can, join us over there. Uh, With the subscription to hear that part, we're going to talk about some of the the more, I guess, intricate details of the matchups. We'll talk about how to beat this list, uh, some things that maybe you had hoped your opponents would have done to give them a a better shot against you in these rounds, which is always kind of interesting to pick apart. Uh, It's a pleasure. If if folks are just, you know, ending their journey with us for this week here, please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, leave us some five-star reviews, leave some comments. That's the way you kind of encourage the aggregators to pick us up, have other people discover us as well. Jack is been great talking to you so far. We're, we're not done. We're going to be hanging out in just a couple of more minutes. Stick with us. Looking forward to it.
2: Like what
0: you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40k network. The War 40 kcom